Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in our Bibles this morning. And we are returning to the last of the Beatitudes in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And you may recall from last week that this is the only one of the Beatitudes which occupies more than one verse. And so we will read verses 10 through 12 again as we begin this morning. If you follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now it is obvious, I think, from just the simple reading of this text, that Jesus declared that those people who are blessed, or as we've been noting, those that are uniquely favored by God, are a people often persecuted by others. And because it is possible to bring persecution on ourselves for actions that are not praiseworthy and noble, we began our message last time by pointing to several activities for which Christians should not suffer. The Apostle Peter, in his first epistle in chapter 4, said that true Christian suffering is something noble. But, he added, suffering as, among other things, as a busybody or a troublesome meddler should not be classified as Christian suffering. So suffering because you are uh, just always stepping into other people's business and giving opinion on affairs that are really not related to you. That is not noble suffering. Uh, No one is blessed for suffering because they are just kind of objectionable people and inflexible and insensitive and difficult to get along with. No one is blessed for suffering on account of just being fanatical or even overly zealous. James chapter 3 says that wisdom that is from above does not operate with a harsh zeal or kind of a get-out-the-vote campaigning spirit for my cause. That kind of approach, he goes on to say, just makes it worse. It is quite possible for me to Uh, adopt a cause that that commends itself on on sound and even biblical reasoning, but pursue that to links and with a passion that simply is not wise and that stirs up a mess of trouble for others, uh, for myself and others around me. And, And these are just some of the ways, again, that I can stir up negative dynamics for my life that um, does not fall under the heading of Christian suffering. I've taken a little more uh, time on that uh, this, this morning. I have a printed, um, a series of printed sermons by Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones on the Sermon on the Mount. And I went back and looked at that this week. And his first message on this beatitude occupies eight pages in print. And, and three of them discuss this matter of unworthy causes for suffering. And that just reflects the heart of a careful 
and an experienced pastor that is very burdened that God's people not bring on themselves unnecessary hurt, and they do not bring unnecessary damage to the cause of Christ and, and excuse those kind of actions under the guise of suffering for the Lord. So that burden needs to be communicated again. But with that note of caution, it is clear that the Scripture does repeatedly point to the reality, as 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the Lord here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10 tells us that one point of tension with this world that brings on persecution is, is what? Well, you can see it. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is righteous living. And we gave our attention to this matter of persecuted for righteousness sake last week. You could recall that all the way back in the beginning of human history, as is recorded in Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed his brother Abel. And the Apostle John in 1 John 3 said that, that the cause of it was that his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Daniel, you know, in the Bible, endured persecution both as a young man and as an adult, and in most cases, just simply for the sake of righteous living. Jesus taught that he was himself persecuted for testifying of the wickedness of the ungodly and that his followers would experience the same reality. And he told the disciples, you are not of the world, and because you are not of the world, the world will hate you. They're going to hate you just for not being what they are. That's what the early church experienced. It is what has been the experience of various forms of nonconformists throughout uh, church history. And, and it is increasingly the lot of God's people in our own country and in our own day. And in some cases, unfortunately, even in our own religious circles. And as we concluded last time, we noted that this theme is so dominant in the scripture and the Lord's words are so clear in this sermon that your response to persecution or maybe even just the threat of persecution for righteousness sake does become an indicator of whether or not you are a true Christian. Again, I mentioned uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermon earlier, but here are some of his uh, concluding remarks from his sermon. I'm quoting, finally, let us ask ourselves this question. Do we know what it is to be persecuted for righteousness sake? To become like him, we have to become light. Light always exposes darkness, and the darkness therefore hates the light. We are not to be offensive. We are not to be foolish. We are not to be unwise. We are not to even parade the Christian faith, but just being like Christ persecution becomes inevitable. But that is the glorious thing. Because if ever you find yourself persecuted for Christ and for righteousness sake, you have in a sense got the final proof of the fact that you are a Christian, that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Unto you, Paul says to the Philippians, unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, Philippians 1, 29. 
And that was the end of uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones' message. We concluded our message last week by considering the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 13, that to turn away from scripturally taught Christ-like living, when tribulation, remember, comes on account of the word, that to turn away from loyal discipleship in order to avoid tribulation, that's a mark of superficial Christianity that in the end is, in that context, fruitless so-called Christianity. But brethren, for, for the Spirit of God and for the grace of God to strengthen you to suffer persecution for living like Christ, now that is a mark that God is at work and that you have the real thing. And then in verse 11, there's some extended application that is made of this emphasis. And I think we see a second point of tension. It's definitely related to the first, but it seems also just a little unique in its focus. Look again at verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Notice the last three words, for my sake. So verse 10, for righteousness sake. Verse 11, for my sake. And it is this matter of suffering for Christ's sake. Or we might even say, for the cause of Christ. Or we might even say it this way, for the gospel of Christ. Suffering for the sake of the cause of Christ and the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That's what we want to explore together this morning. Many believers have been persecuted for being aggressive in seeking to proclaim Christ to others. For, for being evangelistically minded, for being missionary minded, many believers have suffered. In many places of this world, there's at least a professed tolerance to uh, your holding to your religion as long as you keep it to yourself. But how dare you bring your religion for instance, to my door or to some public arena. That will not be tolerated. Some missionaries have been shocked from time to time to find that uh, the majority of people in pagan lands aren't all that thrilled that someone, quote-unquote, cares enough about them to you know, cross over the sea to tell them about Jesus. The fact is that most sinners don't want you intruding in their lives. In our previous ministry, our church had developed a, a good a reputation in, in many respects with the community, a positive profile. Um, and our vacation Bible school every year, we had a float um, and uh, costumes and characters on that float around the theme of what bible school was going to be and every year we won awards in the independence day um, parade and there are multiple other positive connections the church had built but but the vbs brochures that we passed out on the parade route and and that we tried to take to every door at least within the city limits um, those brochures also had a gospel witness to them and every year, 
Um, I would receive in, in one form or another a nasty letter or uh, a phone call and and someone would would basically tell us and sometimes they would just state it right out like this they would tell us to stop trying to shove religion down everybody else's throats but brethren though evangelistic endeavors have and will bring various forms of of persecution the command of christ is to go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in it is an aggressive exhortation that command has to be obeyed and we must strive to give the gospel to every creature in every nation even to the uttermost parts to every last place on the earth the fact that men will will persecute you for proclaiming the best news that could ever be told is just a witness to how pervasive sin is and and the antagonism to the gospel is because of sin but it's not simply being aggressive to proclaim christ that brings on the reaction it is it is being confrontational in the content of the gospel of christ that that brings persecution the gospel declares first corinthians chapter 15 amongst other places the gospel declares that christ had to die for our sins that means that our sins are a big problem when it comes to being rightly related to god the fact that a believer is saved by grace through faith and it's not of works that is a further contribution um, to and, and and confirmation to the fact that that sinful man can't contribute in any way to the saving of himself his being a nice neighbor his being a good family man his uh, loyalty to his religion and religious exercises don't contribute anything being a christian isn't something that you are born into or just kind of you know morph into you must be born again by a conscious confession of sin and calling on god to save you seeking god's salvation is not just a matter of seeking deliverance as well from sin's penalty but it involves a radical change in perspective about sin and every statement of this message that i've just articulated again this morning every statement of it is confrontational but brethren if i let people think that their infant baptism or their confirmation uh, along with a profession of faith in christ if i let them think that baptism and confirmation in christ are all part of the package and every little bit counts i might i might remove some part of the offense but i am not preaching the gospel any longer if i let people think that simply praying the sinner's prayer secures them heaven while there is no sign of a god-worked repentance and conversion many people might be more happy but i'm no longer a faithful steward of the gospel there will be persecution for being aggressive in seeking to proclaim christ and there will be 
persecution for being confrontational even in the content of the gospel message. And there will be persecution as well for being exclusive in the application we make to the gospel. That is for insisting that salvation and forgiveness of sin and eternal life is found in Jesus Christ alone. I one time had a lady on a plane tell me that um, her religion took the, the position that everyone had a spark of divinity in them. And we are all working our way back to God. We're just going about it through different paths. I've given more of the detail of that conversation at, at other times, but for now I'll just say this. When she said we're not so Christocentric, we believe that everybody's working their way back to God, they're just going through different paths. I actually happen to have my Bible open on the plane, and I happen to have it by, by God's superintendents open to the Gospel of John, and I just turned a couple of pages over to John 14, 6. I let her read it for herself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And she reacted, and we're 18 inches or so away from each other. She reacted with intense antagonistic passion and gave me a verbal tongue lashing. People do react to aggressively giving the gospel and confronting sin and by being exclusive in the declaration of it that it has to be Christ and Christ alone. And of course, many in church history lost their lives for the sake of the gospel of Christ. When uh, John Fox attempted to chronicle some of the violent persecutions against believers from the time of Christ up through the 16th century, that the initial English volume of what has come to be known as Fox's Book of Martyrs numbered around 1,800 pages. By the fourth edition, which was produced in Fox's lifetime, his, his record of violent persecution of Christians was said to be four times larger, longer than the Bible itself. Many Puritan families regularly read through in the presence of their children Fox's Book of Martyrs because they wanted their children to know what God's people have experienced throughout the centuries. The vast majority of those martyrs could have escaped their fate if, if they just agreed to keep their faith to themselves. If they just agreed to desist in their efforts to evangelize others. Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 had already spent one night in jail. And then before they were let go, they were ordered to never speak in the name of Jesus again. But this was one of those occasions where they made it clear they would have to obey God and God's order that superseded this order of man. There is a time and a place to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to submit to uh, civil authorities. But there are times where some 
demand something that God's people just can't submit to while honoring God at the same time. And the cause of Christ and the, the commission he gave us must be fulfilled. And when God's people are faithful to it, in the form of, of suffering, isn't always just physical jail or physical beating or martyrdom. Look here again, Matthew 5 and verse 11, at the components of the suffering. Notice, blessed are ye when men shall do what? What's the first form of suffering? When men shall revile you. So reviling is a matter of verbal uh, abuse. Whether it's an insult or name-calling, something of that nature. Then, after uh, being reviled in verse 11, we do have, blessed are you when men shall revile you, and secondly, persecute you. So there is persecution, which is referring, I think, to those physical dynamics. But then notice on the other side of that, we're back to something verbal. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall, no, notice, say, say all manner of evil against you falsely. So that is, that's slander, that's impugning your motives, and so on. So two-thirds of the suffering, as it's laid out here, is actually verbal. And you know, as I do, that that also hurts. That, that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That, that's just plain nonsense. They hurt in a different way, but they hurt. I want to have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and as you're turning there, let me just remind you that Corinth was, the, the city of Corinth, was in uh, a main thoroughfare uh, in Greece at a time, the Bible, first century, at a time where the Greek philosophers in that region were kind of the rage. Right? They, they were not just marked by their content, but they were marked by their rhetorical skills and their polished speech. Some of them were itinerant uh, Greek philosophers, um, one, uh, one, we have indications even in the New Testament, in, in the book of Acts, that one of the main things some of these people like to do even for entertainment is, you know, let's go out into the amphitheater and let's hear what this one has to say. Well, at least some in, in this church in Corinth wanted um, Paul and their ministers to be a little bit more like those Greek philosophers. And look in verse... 17 here of chapter 1 at, at Paul starting to tackle this mentality notice in verse 17 for Christ sent me not to baptize and I, I'm just going to pause here to say in this case what he's talking about is is the Lord didn't send him to gain a following for himself he's not anti-baptism water baptism what he's saying is <clears throat> the Lord didn't send me to baptize a bunch of people so that those people become Paul's people. Well, I was baptized by Paul. I'm one of Paul's people. That's not what the Lord sent him to do. 
But what he sent him to do is in that next phrase, notice, but to preach the gospel. And to preach the gospel, continue looking, not with wisdom of words. Now the word for wisdom here is is the root word Sophia, or the same root word for philosophy um, or philosophers. In fact, the philosophers were sophists. So what Paul is saying is, the Lord didn't send me uh, even to preach in keeping with the content and and even the style of the philosophers. If I did that, look at the rest of the verse, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of non-effect. So I could keep using certain gospel phrases. But if I made the accommodations that some of you are wanting to make, the message of the cross would be emptied of its power. It would be made of none effect. And it seems his first interest in in establishing that point is the content of the gospel. Look at verse number 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. And right at this point, that this isn't so much about the action of preaching, he's going to get to that, but this is about the message preached. The cross and all of its ramifications is, is to those that are unsaved, unregenerate. It is foolishness. Look at verse number 23. You can see he's still on this idea of, of this message. We preach Christ crucified. And that message is, as you can see it, unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Yes, he says, Jews and Gentiles, they both have issues with proclaiming that salvation is exclusively through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. But if I were to adjust the message to remove some of that offensiveness, it would be, back to verse number 17, it would be to strip the gospel of its power to save. Turn over to chapter 2. In the first few verses of chapter 2, he does, I think, get to his delivery. Notice 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1. Then I, brother, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And this, is a, this again, is now about delivery. So he's saying, when I did <clears throat> preach that message, I didn't try to impress anyone with my vast vocabulary and my speaking skills. I just, and notice he uses the word in verse uh, 1, I just, uh, he said he declared it. I just kept declaring i kept preaching in a straightforward fashion then verse two i determined not to know anything among you save jesus christ and him crucified and and that is to say that i wasn't targeting you being impressed with me so i didn't use this expansive vocabulary and i didn't use all the rhetorical skills and fine speech I wasn't targeting you being impressed with me. What I wanted you to go away with is pointing you to Christ. And verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear 
And in much trembling, he's really even talking about bodily weakness. In verse 4, my speech, my preaching, he's saying it again. It was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul said, I never counted on any lasting results, being because... People were impressed with me and my speaking ability. I counted on lasting results coming from the Spirit of God doing a work that I couldn't do. And I'm not going to adjust now, again, because going back to chapter 1 and verse 17, that would nullify the gospel's power. Now, what did people say about Paul because of those things? Because he wouldn't adjust his message and because he wouldn't adjust even his style and even kind of his own personal uh, presence. They said his content was too exclusive, too negative, too offensive. His delivery style, his personal appearance was just more of the same. In chapter 3, when he says that he fed them with milk, He appears to be acknowledging that that he's heard the comments, that his content is basically like baby food. Turn over to chapter 4. Paul knows that he is being critiqued and that he's coming up on the short end. And I just want you to see that in verse number 3, chapter 4, verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be what? That I should be judged of you, he adds, or any other man's judgment as well. That I should be critiqued of you. It's not a big deal what you think of me, is what he's saying there. And, And I don't have the time to trace this tension Even through the rest of this chapter, there's more indicators of it in chapter 4, the rest of this book, on into 2 Corinthians as well, because it continues there. I'm not tracing it all the way through, but I just want to draw your attention to this. You don't even need to turn. But in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 15, this is what he says. He says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am what? Do you know that? Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. I have invested. I'm going to keep investing. By God's grace, I love you more and more. Even though the more I love you, the less you love me. He's hearing the negative remarks from within the church even for his faithful ministry. And that wasn't even just the Corinthian church in the book of Galatians where he's having to Contend. You don't need to turn there either, but where he's having to contend against the inroads of a false gospel. It's making its way into the church. He ends up saying in Galatians 4, verse 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And, and this has often been the lot of God's servants. Now, why, why am I pursuing that theme? I'm doing it to just, again, illustrate that suffering for Christ's sake is not just physical, but it is also verbal. All right, did Paul, for instance, suffer persecution? 
Well, absolutely. He suffered in immense proportions. I mean, multiple seasons of jail time and beatings and stonings and ultimately martyrdom. But did he suffer verbal reproach as well? Absolutely. He, he faced in, insults and name-calling and false accusations about his motives. He absolutely suffered that. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. And let's explore again what kind of response Jesus exhorted us to when we face these kinds of dynamics. Verse 10, persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, persecuted, involving two-thirds of that, being verbal, for my sake and the gospel's sake. Now verse 12, do what? Rejoice and be exceeding glad. That's the Christian response to suffering for the cause of Christ's sake. The Christian response is not retaliation. The Christian response is not resentment. And brethren, the Christian response is also not depression, for lack of a better word. Just, I can't take any more of this, forget it. There's, there's no point to it. I mean, I invest in, and I tell people the best news they, I could ever tell them, and all they do is... Uh, you know, is call me names and get upset and, and maybe I invest in this church and I've been doing it for so long and, and all people do is talk about me and I just quit. That's not the Christian response. The Christian response is rejoice and don't just be glad, but be exceedingly glad. And do so because of certain truths. And one of them, as you can see there, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And then the second truth, as you can see, is for so persecuted they, the prophets which were before you. That is, that is rejoice in knowing that if that comes to you for the cause of Christ, you're consistent with a whole line of true servants of God that have come before you. Your identity in that case is marked as one with Christ and with good and faithful servants that came before him in the Old Testament and, and have followed him since. It's interesting with my mind down that path of thinking about Paul and both physical persecution and the verbal responses Right after he was converted on the road to Damascus, the Lord sent him, you remember, to a brother named Ananias. And Ananias was not so sure uh, about seeing Paul because up to this time he was known as Saul of Tarsus, and Saul of Tarsus was one of the leading persecutors of the followers of Christ. But I want us to be reminded of a part of what the Lord told Ananias about Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse number 15. The Lord said, Go thy way, for he, referring to Paul, for he is a chosen vessel unto me 
listen to this, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that's all wonderful. But verse 16, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. There it is. He was going to be greatly used. But he was going to suffer great things on account of the Lord's namesake. Paul was going to fall in line with those Old Testament prophets, with John the Baptist, with Jesus himself, and all that have come after uh, him, that have known usefulness in, in the Great Commission. They've all known reviling and persecution and people making up false accusations. And when it came to closer to the end of Paul's ministry, when all sorts of well-meaning brethren were telling Paul that if he continued on his path to Jerusalem, that this time it would, it would involve far more serious consequences than he had yet known. And Paul did respond to that by, by saying he did think that the Holy Spirit was letting him know that bonds and afflictions were waiting for him in Jerusalem. But in Acts 20 and verse 24, he said, None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I'm not going to be moved by the knowledge about bonds and afflictions because I've been given a task and I want to fulfill that stewardship with joy. And quite honestly, it's a privilege just to be able to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Now, brethren, when you think about some reproach in your own life that may come with evangelizing you think about some of the the negative ramifications that may come if you confronted sin when you evangelize maybe you think about uh, the limitations you may have on your ministry and you may be thinking something very local to family or work or you know friends of that nature or you may be thinking about something that's broader in terms of, you know, church leadership and, and some broader form of ministry. When you think about limitations on your ministry, if you don't adjust the message or your style. Or maybe even you think about um, the impact of you being part of a church that won't adjust the message or the style. And maybe there's even a, a bit of a stigma of being part of that. When, when you think about, again, the impact of all of this and count the cost, what will your response be? And I'm going to mention Dr. Lloyd-Jones one more time. But in keeping even with Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Lloyd-Jones said, my whole outlook upon everything that happens to me should be governed by three things. 
my realization of who I am, my consciousness of where I'm going, and my knowledge of what awaits me when I get there. Brethren, count the cost, absolutely. Sticks and stones, maybe. Hurtful words, absolutely. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You won't be useful for the cause of Christ without bearing some kind of reproach for that. It's given you not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. That's part of the package. But when you face it, remember who you are. Remember where you're going. And remember what awaits you when you get there. If you, if you suffer something in ministry for Christ's sake, brethren, rejoice and be exceeding glad that great is your reward in heaven. You're experiencing what the Lord himself experienced and what all faithful servants have known, at least in measure. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? Let's pray together. Our Father, this is not a comfortable theme to consider. It can even leave us conflicted as we pray. We, we desire to be useful in your hands, and we pray to that end. We want to see the gospel advanced, and, and we pray to that end. But Lord, you know my own heart. I believe you know our brethren here. We, we don't want to suffer even for these things. So Lord, we need a work of your Spirit, and we need the strength of your grace. We need, I need, the nurturing of our faith. And Lord, we ask that you would grant all this to us in spite of ourselves or change our thinking, overhaul the state of our emotions, and may it be seen in our actions. Lord, we pray that you would do all of this, even for our good, as you proclaim this blessedness. Do it for the good of lost souls and do it ultimately for your own honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, that God comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. God bless you.